From Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a big global business. I'm Christopher Lawson. Transferring money globally has long been dominated by banks and services like Western Union. The problem with these traditional systems is generally the customer gets ripped off. You get really poor exchange rates and huge fees attached. However, today's founder built a global unicorn trying to change that. Christo Carmen is the CEO and co-founder of TransferWise, a service that takes the pain out of moving money by giving you the actual exchange rate. When you go to your bank, which is what normally people do, and make an international transfer, an international wire, what the bank tells you is it costs 20 bucks or, or something equivalent to that. What they don't tell you is that they give you a, a terrible exchange rate and charge 5% of your money or more or a bit less. Um, but the worst thing is you won't even know what you get charged. For Christo, his journey to becoming the founder of a multi-billion dollar company started in Estonia, a small country in northeastern Europe bordering Russia that in recent times has become a hub for digital innovation. I grew up um, through the late phases of the Soviet Union. Um, so I'm born in 1980 and I was 11 years old when um, my country became independent again. So the Berlin Wall fell when I was nine, and the kind of new uh, new world started when I was uh, about eleven. So I, I remember some of these things pretty um, uh, pretty well. Of course, I you know that wasn't the most important thing that ha- was happening in my life back then. Uh, but kind of thinking back, it, it was uh, an interesting time. And then maybe what happened afterwards was. Uh, uh, was even more formative where from 91 the collective economy had gone away and you know we didn't need these uh, factories of heavy machinery in the in the country that had no um, minerals to to mine so all the economy needed to be restarted um, and everyone basically became an entrepreneur finding ways out to put money um, in their pockets and, and food on the table um, and got very creative. So um, we had no banks in the country when it started. Uh, we had uh, we had very little of the infrastructure that you know would take us granted these days. So that all had to be set up. Um, during my age of sort of eleven to eighteen, I guess uh, I had no part to this. I was just observing what was happening around me. The late 80s and early 90s led to the independence of Estonia from the former Soviet Union. And for Christo, one of his memories of this time was the singing revolution. Mass gatherings of people who were getting together and just singing as a form of non-violent protest. We had this thing called a singing revolution. I was pretty a little weird thinking back uh, to it now, but there were massive like national song festivals for 20% of the population showed up to those. So it's a bit of a, like a revolutionary moment. It wasn't, uh, there's no blood on the streets, no stones being thrown, um, quite peaceful demonstration. Um, but that was, there was a lot of that in the late eighties, um, and, um, uh, kind of running up to the, 
uh, running through the perestroika, which was the Gorbachev's uh, easing. So you knew that you could do that without going to Siberia uh, and to the Gulag. So that was uh, that was the kind of undercurrent uh, that was actually happening in uh, uh, in that time. And then there was a bit of um, um, a bit of conf- confrontation once the um, once the Soviet Union was dismantling and then trying to still hold itself together. But um, there's a bit of confrontation there, but it never got uh, never got bad for us, which was good. And you know, as uh, as a teenager, like um, what what kind of things were you into? Like what what hobbies did you have? Um, like what what was the you know your sort of like go to way to spend your time? I think like any other uh, any other teenager, I, I do remember the <clears throat> that I wanted to be a farmer when I uh, when I grew up. For some reason, uh, my my um, kind of remote family um, had a had a small farm back in the country. Spent a bit of time there. Found that very uh, kind of romantic. You would say now, I didn't think about it romantic back then. It was just very. Uh, kind of interesting and uh, a useful thing to, to do is to, to be a farmer. Um, that didn't turn out well. <laughs> Christo has two brothers, and both his parents were working in steady research-related jobs, working on some pretty fascinating projects. His dad was using lasers to measure pollution in seawater, and his mum was working on a Soviet version of Windows. Which never launched. Um, so, of course, we didn't have any PCs, um, but there were um, Soviet uh, kind of computer system, mainframe type computer systems. And it turns out she she and her teams were working on uh, graphical user interfaces uh, for for those for those mainframes, which they never launched. I think I think the thing collapsed before uh, they got to it. But it was about the same time as. Uh, it's probably Bill was working on micro, uh, Microsoft Windows. Do you remember your first interaction with technology? Oh yeah, um, a couple actually. So the very first one was definitely at Mum's uh, uh, Mum's workplace, where they had this uh, this computer was enormous um, that they they had running. They they only had two in the country. So one was where my mom worked, um, and I think there was only like twenty five computers of of that built, and then. Uh, uh, you had a, a massive computer and then terminals. And then I got some game going or something I could do with one of those terminals to to leave my mom alone to get on with uh, her work. And then I did something and it went blank. I was so scared to tell anyone that I had I had broken the, the supercomputer, one of the two supercomputers in the country. <laughs> I told her that we should go away really quickly. You know, those sort of like interactions with computers must have rubbed off on you because I understand you studied um, computer science when you got to got to university. Uh, that's true. Um, There's two stories. By the way, I got, um, I was somehow very lucky. My dad got his hands on a Commodore 2001. If you look it up on the internet, it looks like a clunky box of uh, metal, but it was, uh, it was one of the... Um, one of the great person, first personal computers uh, from early 80s. So when I got it, it was like mid-90s already. 
it had a tape drive where you could load uh, games. It ran basic, but it was so slow. It was very slow, this computer. So um, I built a, a very uh, trivial sound card. It didn't have any sound. So uh, I built a sound card for it, uh, which was effectively uh, putting uh, or kind of wiring a, a transistor to a loudspeaker to a, a, a parallel port and then you know you could uh, make sound make the computer make sound which was fun but it was so slow that uh, the, the sounds were weird coming out so I, uh, I also had to learn how to code in assembler basically the machine code because the normal programming languages were too slow in this machine uh, that was when I was uh, probably in the sun, like 14, 15. Uh, but clearly nothing nothing else better to do. Uh, but yeah, then, then I went to university uh, later on, studied. I actually went to study mathematics. Um, so I thought that was... I initially wanted to study uh, philosophy. Um, and then my older brother uh, talked me out of it. And uh, I went to study mathematics, uh, which then turned out to be uh, just a lot of uh, hard work. and computer science was so much easier. So I specialized um, into, into computer science later on. Following his studies, Christo, like many others who have featured on this podcast, moved into the world of consulting, often working on projects for telecommunications and banking. I got involved in a, in a project first in a, in a telecom where uh, it was getting to the, to the place where there were... Um, creating a lot of uh, information about how people use their network, um, who's, uh, who's calling how much, what kind of calls, etc. There's a lot of data to be, to be analyzed. And uh, uh, I got involved in from that aspect of helping, helping these telcos. And then through my consulting uh, journey, um, I ended up uh, working with, banks and financial institutions, insurers, to modernize their processes, I think is the, is the big word. Uh, but, but what it really ma- means is that technology had moved on, tools had come about. Um, the banks were still running as they were 20 years ago. And uh, it could have been done so much faster, smarter, cheaper, easier. Um, Actually, pretty much everything they did. Uh, we were more focused on their kind of financial processes, risk, um, and so on, um, and the analytics around it. So, my job was effectively go to banks and uh, and uh, work out projects how they can improve their processes um, and, and modernize. And after this short break, Christo runs into a problem with the money that he's making from consulting. And solving that problem leads to the creation of TransferWise. Christo Carmen had a great career in consulting. He was working on interesting projects for telecommunications and banking, and that career had led him to work in London. And then around 2008, he ran into a problem when trying to send money back home to Estonia. 
the, the good problem I had at the time was uh, I did have a great salary and um, I had some spare money at the end of the year after the, after the bonuses uh, where uh, my savings account was back in Estonia. So my plan was, uh, my plan was only to be in London for a couple of years. So I wanted to move my money back to, back to Estonia. Um, and it was 2008, 2007, Actually, the, the background story to that was uh, uh, the euro um, area was going into a, a bit of a challenge. So um, it was possible to to earn quite a good uh, percentage on your savings back at home. So I thought, you know, why do I have these pounds sitting here where I could um, earn a, a good interest? Uh, I think that was something like 5% or uh, 4% uh, on, the, on the euro savings. So I made a transfer. I went to HSBC and said, um, can you please transfer these 10,000 pounds to this bank account in Estonia in euros? Um, as a euro bank account. So what they, that, that was all fine. Um, I had to show up at the branch at the time to do it, but that's fine. Uh, so about a week later, the money arrives in Estonia. Um, and then I look at the amount of euros and I see there's like 500 euros missing. I start quizzing the um, uh, Estonian bank. Uh, what, did, you, did you fat finger or make an error? And then I asked the uh, UK bank what's going on. Um, and I was told everything is uh, exactly correct. Uh, and I started um, you know, researching it more and, and understood what happened was HSBC charged me 15 pounds, I think it was at the time for the transfer. And then use an exchange rate that was widely different to what I saw on Reuters or Bloomberg or Google or wherever you look online, you see an exchange rate from pound to euro. Um, and the one that uh, HSBC uses is that minus 5%. So that's how you lose money uh, when uh, when you when you use your bank. And that's what I realized. And I thought, okay, that's very embarrassing that I didn't, I didn't check it. I didn't know to check it at the time. And I started to look around and see, okay, should I have used Lloyd's? Is, is Lloyd's any different? Or you know, is there a Western Union or a broker or s- someone who's doing these kinds of things? And it turns out, you know, if I, if I call them up and get a quote and do the math, I could figure out how much every, anyone, everyone is charging. Um, and it ranged somewhere at the time from 2% to 5%. And you can work it out and you can choose the, the best one for you, but you pretty much have to do it every time. And it was, it was quite annoying, it was quite expensive. And it was really most embarrassing because now I have to keep this money in this uh, savings account for a year to earn back what I lost in milliseconds in interest. That was like, I felt pretty, pretty silly having done this. And then I stumbled on a solution, um, which was uh, which was that I had a friend at the time who had also moved to London right about the same time, and um, he had the exact opposite problem. So he was paid; um, he was working at Skype at the time, um, and was paid in euros, uh, but his living expenses was uh, were in pounds, and. Um, and he had to move euros to pounds all the time. So what we started doing was I gave him my pounds. It was just a transfer from his UK ba- from my UK bank account to his. 
And then we looked at the Reuters exchange rate and he gave me his euros in Estonia. Again, just a local bank transfer from Seoul. We, uh, I saved, you know, 5% on my money and he saved something similar that the um, Estonian bank would have charged him. That was, uh, that was the original solution. That was the original transferwise. Uh, so this, this friend of mine um, later became a co-founder um, at Transferwise. Christo and his soon-to-be co-founder, Tavet Hinrikis, had solved the problem of transferring money between Estonia and the UK, but just for themselves and a small group of their friends. When someone wanted to send money, they'd jump into a Skype group and see who would give them the currency that they needed. And then it was only a few years later, I had been working for, for the banks here and in Europe, and I guess gotten a bit inspired about how slowly they're moving and uh, a bit frustrated as a consultant where you come up with these uh, amazing things that would be so smart and not so smart, not even not even incredibly smart, just like average smart to do. And it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard to get these done. Uh, and so, so there was... There was certainly some inspiration from that that the banks wouldn't solve it themselves, um, and and at the time we didn't also know we we thought it's uh, it might be an Estonian problem in London or maybe it's just a problem in in London uh, or in the UK, and then in 2011 uh, me and my co-founder Talbot decided to try it out. So we we built an app. Um, was effectively a website and an Excel sheet behind it, which uh, which did exactly that. So it took orders from anyone in the UK who wanted to send money to Eurozone and, and then also orders from people from Eurozone who wanted to send money to the UK and then matched them up, uh, collected the pound, collected the Euros and then paid out again. Uh, that, was, that was the first app. Um, again, we had no idea if that's going to work. We... We launched with a post on TechCrunch in in 2011, so that's almost 10 years ago now. Um, and it was literally the post said what I just told you. There's two Estonian guys. They've created this website where you can transfer money. Um, you yeah. uh, know, that's that's it. And then 15 minutes later, after this post appeared on the internet, someone put 2,000 pounds on our account to send to France. And then some uh, euros started turning up uh, from Ireland, from Austria, and other places in Europe. Um, and by the end of the day, we had a, in the finance, you call it a book. So people who wanted to send money one way and people who wanted to send money the other way. And we, we had to get on starting to make transactions. So I went through my phone book, thought who, who, who I could, who we could hire to, to, to work with us on this. Um, so that's that's the real start of the, the the company. It was really a hypothesis that it's not the problem for us alone. It's uh, it's a problem for other Europeans in the UK, uh, maybe even Australians in the UK, maybe uh, Brazilians in Australia. It turned out that that's also true. That's the beginning of it. In case you missed what Christo just said. The first version of TransferWise was the very definition of an MVP. It was a website and an Excel spreadsheet, and that's it. It was the bare minimum they needed to see whether the idea would even work. And it turns out 
people loved it. Although while the app itself was simple, as a financial services company, there was a few hoops they had to jump through before they could start transferring other people's money. But even though the app was a bare-bones MVP and the regulation process took some time, Christo says they still launched later than they should have. Running up to this, um, I spent about six months reading through the regulations, um, getting a license from the uh, local regulator here, FCA, um, kind of setting everything up that it, it would work. So it was, uh, it was still too long, uh, but the, the foundations were, were actually okay. Uh, the tech, of course, has been rebuilt four or five times by now. Um, but, uh, but, but some of the, some of the thinking that we, we put into this, uh, even in the first app has prevailed. And, and some of it is actually, uh, very useful. So the, the thing that TransferWise would leave behind, um, I think the biggest thing will be that, that money between currencies should exchange at the mid market exchange rate. So that's, remember the original problem I had wasn't that HSBC charged me 15 pounds. Problem was that HSBC. It wasn't even that HSBC charged me five hundred um, pounds. The problem was that HSBC didn't tell me what they're going to charge me. That was the problem. So, um, and and the the real reason why we exist is that traditionally and even today, banks get away with with hiding their uh, their fees in the exchange rate. That's actually the the root problem. And since the beginning, one of the one of the new things that we did this it was a simple web page, as, as I explained. But the the special thing was that the exchange rate was the same that you saw on Reuters. So there's no tampering with the exchange rate. When you saw on Reuters, you knew that you're going to get there, um, and we charged a fee. So we're transparent and like how much it's going to cost. If it's a larger amount, uh, we would charge more. If it's a smaller amount, we charge we charge less. Um, uh, but it was transparent. And that's the thing that has prevailed. And over the time, I realized that's actually the most important thing that we do is that we make these exchanges happen transparently. As you got more customers, um, I mean, was there a point where you, where you kind of realized that, you know what, actually, like this has, this has the potential to, to be something that that's going to be quite big. Um, was there like a, a moment for you um, where that where that happened, where you realized that you, you'd actually come up with something that has a lot of potential impact? To be honest, um, a lot of that we already got from the first day. So the first day that we launched, uh, one was that we saw people actually trusting this web page built by two Estonian dudes. That was that was amazing, but but it maybe. Even more amazing was the amount of email that I got at the back of this article where, and that came all over the world. So that wasn't just people in London or Europeans. This was um, Chileans and uh, Russians and Australians and everyone who was telling me that, you know, I used to study abroad, had this exact same problem, might have even had this solution. Um, I thought this could be a, a business but I never launched it. Um, or then I hear about um, these crazy schemes uh, that apparently are a thing where um, I think it was a Canadian student in the US where they were sending money back to Canada or they had to, or uh, they had to uh, kind of return funds to Canada 
And the way they did it was they bought Microsoft shares <clears throat> on a US brokerage, transferred these to the Canadian brokerage and sold them for Canadian dollars. That was the way how they got around banks' fees because that was cheaper than going to a bank say, saying, hey, can you send these dollars to, to Canada, please? And how are you how are you sort of financing everything in in those early days because presumably if you know someone gives you money in pounds uh, you know and they're sending money to Estonia you know you need to have the equivalent um in Estonia so how are you um sort of balancing that aspect of of your business in the early days uh, th- that's true in the early days you know of course we didn't have any any money to invest and we had to figure it out so the we came up with some pretty Clever ideas how to um, how to balance these flows as you as you rightly said the money moves the fastest if it's already there um, and if it's in imba- if it's in imbalance then uh, it takes time until you you get the other side so what we started doing was um, adjusting the the size so if we had a shortage of euros um, we would allow people sending much larger amounts from Europe than in the UK, so you'd only allow smaller amounts in the UK, and that kind of helped to balance these uh, these flows uh, in the early days. Um, but then, of course, we we saw quite a lot of activity, and we saw a lot of demand for the product, um, and started expanding out. I mean, we saw a lot of demand for other currencies, so people were writing to us and said, "Hey, can we?" It's, it looks like a really clever system. Can I? I need some money to Australia. Can I do this? I said no, you can't. Um, but you soon can because we're gonna uh, we're gonna launch Australian dollar as well. And then we're now up to fifty three currencies around the world that we we support this way. And of course, then um, managing the liquidity um, at a larger scale meant that we can tap into those wholesale markets. So we don't need to go to HSBC and get screwed by the exchange right there, but we can. Uh, trade with whoever trades in the uh, in the in the wholesale. So, kind of, we, we trade. We're a trading partner to to the banks rather than the the client of the banks, and there the terms are very very different. Um, so, um, so that that started to help us manage the liquidity a little bit better. But the original idea still works today. So, if you're sending money from Australia to the UK, it's very likely that uh, a that money that I'm going to be paid in the UK is already in, in here. So that transfer happens in less than 20 seconds from your perspective. Your money goes into Australia um, and and my money comes out of the UK uh, and vice versa because uh, we would then use your Australian dollars that you, you contribute to the network to pay out other people who are sending money to Australia. TransferWise had found market traction and it was a global company from day one. But how do you manage a worldwide expansion? That's coming up after this short break. TransferWise was a global company from day one due to their focus on international transfers. And it didn't take long before they started looking to open new offices. Christo says a lot of their international growth 
has been driven by customer demand. They would get so many requests from particular countries that they would want to open their service into those markets. And over time, as demand in particular markets grew, they would realise a need to put bodies on the ground and open a new location. We're a very international business almost by definition. Um, And it starts from from customers because they're writing to us that, hey, I need Australian dollar, I need Brazilian real, I need um, all these... Uh, all these destinations and uh, um, places. So we're we're international by by definition. And, and coming to offices, we also started pretty much immediately in three locations. Uh, um, I was in London. My co- my co-founder and I were in London. Um, we had we quickly hired a, a small team in Tallinn, Estonia, where we're from, and our engineering team was actually based in Ukraine at the time. Um, so we, we we kind of had to operate from three three locations from the from the beginning, and then as we as we expanded, we realized that okay, we have a lot of customers in uh, in the eastern time zones, um, and then Singapore became our um, our hub there. But we have an office in Australia as well because Australia is a is a large base. We have an office in Japan, um, Malaysia now. Um, on, 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 on that hemisphere and then on the, uh, on the other side, um, of course, a lot of customers are in, in the United States um, and, and Latin America. So we, we now have bases there as well. But we're really following, following the customers where, where they are, where we need to support them, where we need to be closer to the market to, to understand the nuances, um, like what makes, what, makes these, what makes our product convenient for the, for the local user. TransferWise now has 14 offices around the world and 2,200 staff. And that kind of growth requires that leaders adapt and develop because running a small startup is wildly different from managing a massive global team. So how has Christo's approach to leadership changed over time? This is a good question. It's, um, it's hard to see. Uh, it's kind of hard, hard to self-analyze how you've uh, you've changed, but but surely um, surely there there are things. Uh, I would like to think that most of uh, most of it has changed the same. So surely I've uh, I'm smarter about things. I'm, I'm smarter about what uh, how to how to work with with people. I'm smarter smarter about um, how to get things done. Probably more patient. Uh, uh, over time, uh, do less my uh, manage the urge of doing less my doing doing things myself, which is uh, which is awesome. Uh, but I but I have actually made an effort to retain some of those things. So I do pick up customer calls. Uh, I block out time where where I do that uh, these days. Maybe not every two months or so. Um, I write some code sometimes. Um, and uh, dig through data, um, join in kind of product design sessions and, uh, and, and other things. So I, I have blocked out some of my time to actually do the work, if, if nothing else, understand what it feels like doing the work so that I can, uh, I can lead the leader to the people who are actually then doing the work. Um, I quite enjoy 
quite enjoy that part. And with having this global global company with so many offices and so many staff, how do you think about building and, and creating and keeping an effective company culture and what makes TransferWise's um, culture unique? Um, the culture is a, is, is a great, great question and I, I think I can answer it in, in two different ways. So the first thing is we've been very clear with with everyone who's joining like why are they like why are they here like w- w- first of all what is the reason why i'm here i have this mission that we can uh, can move money between countries for instantly pretty conveniently and nearly for free uh not quite for free but getting closer and closer every every time so that's that's the reason why i'm i'm here um, and that's the reason why this company exists. So everyone who's joining this uh, has to be very aware that this is what they're getting involved in. Uh, and if they if they want, if they like it, then they're going to be really great at it. If it somehow conflicts with what they want to do in their life, they shouldn't be joining. So there's this... Uh, as long as you're really clear on on what your mission is and you don't depart you don't do things that kind of conflict with uh, with the mission or or don't don't support it then it's i think it's pretty easy it's pretty clear um and and everyone who's joining know what they're what, what they're getting on board with um they know what how their uh, kind of contribution is um is evaluated by uh, by our customers because that mission is not, you know, that's how our customers would also um, see us or, or or evaluate how the company is doing is by these same by these same metrics. So, effectively, every person in the company can uh, evaluate what their contribution is not to the not just to the company but also to to our customers. I think that's made it relatively easy to uh, for everyone to be aligned of why we're here. Um, and then it becomes a question of you know, how do you achieve this in the kind of simplest way? And there are different approaches, but you, you know, as long as you know what you want to achieve, converging on a on a similar approach that everyone um, wants to do is uh, makes sense. So we, we give people a lot of we we, don't, we actually don't need to give people some people I think already have autonomy when they join. Um, so it's not something to give or take, uh, but a lot of uh, a lot of the folks here can plot their own path of of how they contribute to the mission in the most effective way. And of course, we've I've been doing this for ten years, so I have some ideas of what works and always less, uh, and some structure. Uh, a lot of the structure is in is in place that you can you can join. But then if you if you figure out something new, then uh, then it's yours to uh, yours to pursue. Finance-based businesses tend to be very um, capital-intensive, um, and you guys have raised a lot of money over your journey. Do you have any advice for other founders as to figuring out who you should take money from and how much you should actually raise? Well, we're um, we're a different type of uh, different type of tech business or a, or a rare type of tech business. Uh, with the one that that's profitable, um, we have been so for for three years now, and um, 
Um, and that's, that's something I'd recommend. So if you, if you can be profitable, you should be, I think that that's super, uh, super great. If you feel that your customers are paying your salary, it's not, I mean, someone's paying your salary. Is it investors? Uh, is it you know, founders or, or is it the customers? In our case, it's the customers. They pay the salary and even something that, that we can put in the bank for, for the rainy day. So, so this is, uh, uh, this is amazing. I recommend, um, for companies if they, if they can do that, think of it. What would you need to do to raise, raise less? I mean, it's, uh, we we had we had to raise uh, we probably raised too much money over the over the course of the years in, in retrospect. There is certainly our companies are raised too little money, so they could use more um, to to develop um, uh, develop the product better or more uh, before customers are willing to pay for it um, enough to support the to support the effort. So there's there's no right or wrong answer for us. Um, I'm very happy or very lucky even that we've been able to be, be profitable as a company. So we're also ramen profitable as in we have enough uh, profit to make some ramen noodles, not to, uh, not to hoard cash. You know, in, in 10 years, you've been able to build, um, this, this really big company and, and making such a big difference to the way people, um, the way people move money. When you look at everything that you've achieved so far, how do you feel? I'm I'm happy. Uh, I, as you, as you said, I have every reason to be to be happy for what we've already achieved. Um, but it's also it's, it's a little bit bipolar. Uh, one way you're looking at things you've already achieved, but every day you realize how much longer there is to go and how much more could have been done, and and realize that you've built a team that's actually pretty good at getting these things done. When we look at the, the, the challenges, not just in, in moving money across borders, but, but other things that, uh, that have kept the banks in, uh, in, the, in the last century, and there's, a, there's a lot to do. There's a lot, lot that can be done for the benefit of, uh, of everyone. There's more convenient, cheaper, and faster financial system. Um, so it's a little bit bipolar. You feel like really good about what you've already achieved, but on the other hand, the, the opportunity is, uh, is big and someone has to do it. Building a Unicorn is a Lawson Media production. You can find out more about the show at our website, buildingaunicorn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, mixing and editing by James Parkinson. Nick Buchanan composed our theme track, and Andrew Millist designed our artwork. If there's a founder that you'd love us to profile on the show, send us a message to unicorn at lawson.media, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Build a Unicorn. Thanks for listening, and we'll speak to you again soon.